Happy Fourth of July weekend. Uh, I'm like you. I'm enjoying myself. I am uh, spending time outside with my family. I'm drinking a couple beers. Uh, I'm having a pop or two. All right. And uh, I am celebrating what this country could be. Uh, so happy Fourth to everybody out there who has a, uh, a shred of pride left, you know, here, here in America in 2020. We can, uh, we can push through this thing. And uh, hopefully the next 4th of July will be a lot more of a big celebration. Um, listen, I put together a little highlight reel for the month of June. We've had a good month, okay? The guys rolled these guests back at me, and I'm like, holy shit, we got a real podcast. Like, I can remember I, dark days early on, okay? We got a real podcast now. Let me hit you with the lineup of who, you, who you're about to hear in the next few minutes. Mark Cuban, okay? Owner of the Dallas Mavericks, somebody that people want to, to run for president. I guess that's a low bar at this point, uh, you know, with the guy in office. But Mark Cuban, big business tycoon, very interesting guy. And uh, that was a great interview. Tom Morello, Rage Against the Machine, Audio Slave. That was awesome. Uh, had 30 minutes with him, and we covered a lot of ground. The guy has an enormous brain. I mean, very smart guy. Um, Dave Damashek, of course, System Bands is one of my favorite pods we've done. System Bands uh, was a big hit, and Damashek is perfect for that kind of pod. Matt Barnes had him on recently. Love a big NBA name, especially right now. Matt Barnes, though, is not just a big NBA name. He's a really bright dude off the court. A lot on his plate. Of course, he's a, a podcaster as well, fellow podcaster, All the Smoke with Steven Jackson, and wants to be the mayor of Sacramento at some point. Told me that on the pod. Uh, Steve Kerr, you've heard of him. If you like winning, you know Steve Kerr. You know, we had Bruce Arians, head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, talked about uh, Tom Brady and more. Matt Ryan, same division there. Also a big football name. And then, of course, my dad, Howie Long, Father's Day. So uh, there's some good stuff from all, all these interviews. And June was a hell of a month. Thanks to y'all. So keep listening. Have a safe and happy fourth. You know, be careful with the fucking fireworks, man, please. If one of my listeners loses a finger, I'm going to be pissed. Okay? Enjoy these interviews. Be safe. See you next week. June's in the books. Uh, it is summertime, finally. And, you know, you can still get outside responsibly. A little fun in the sun. Uh, we could all use it. That includes me. I'm going to be taking uh, my family on vacation here soon uh, up to Montana, where I will be hitting the trails in my tree dashers from Allbirds. Sponsor of the Greenlight Pod, of course. Lightweight, tough, made of all natural materials. They're a friend of the environment, guys. Uh, and when you put these shoes on, they're the type of uh, shoe that make you want to get out there and get after it. And uh, they look good. They feel good. In football, we say look good, feel good, play good. Same thing with all birds, whether you're on the trail or just out and about. Uh, even in social distancing, if somebody's like eight feet away, it's good to see that you got nice shoes on. All birds got that handled. Thrilled to have them as a sponsor. Allbirds has been with us for a couple weeks now officially. Go check out the tree dashers at allbirds.com.
Franchise quarterback here. Uh, one of the best, one of my favorites, somebody from my draft class, somebody I've known from way back when, ACC media days, you know, the, what was that? What was that thing we, by the way, it's Matty Ice, Matt Ryan, the one and only. Matt, what was the thing we went to out in the desert? Was that the Playboy All-American retreat in the, uh, in the desert? God, I don't, what were we doing out there? I don't know, man, but like. It's this been a long 11, time. Yeah, the 11, 12 years has flown by, and I got out while I still could. You're still uh, slinging it around the yard, throwing for 4,000 yards every year like it's no problem. Do you feel old yet? We're playing two different positions, bro. <laughs> you, you can age a little bit differently at my spot than you can at yours, but uh, I still feel pretty good. You know, some days are better than others, but I still feel pretty good, and I can't believe I'm going into year 13. I feel like we were just in the desert kind of hanging out. I know. It was yesterday, you know? I don't want to put you on the spot with bulletin board material right off the bat, but this is an important question about your, your division rival, Tom Brady, and I'm going to hold you to answering this question. Could you beat Tom Brady at golf? Because I hear you're pretty good, and he didn't look that great on TV. <laughs> I watched the match, and I'm not – listen, I'm not going to talk any shit because it's not easy when you're playing with Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson, and you're the only people on the course. But from what I saw, I think I might be able to get Tom Brady. I think. <laughs> Yo, did you just did you, you just, just you end up on Tom's shit list? Just hitting it right, and it just kept going right. Hey, listen, some he's got to be bad at something. It's not even like he's bad. I think he's probably pretty good. I don't know anything about golf, but the the you know everybody took pleasure in turning on the TV that day because there was a captive audience and saying. Oh my God, there's something that I might be able to hang with Tom Brady at. And that was all regular Joes were on. I didn't know that he was bad or good, but I hear you're very good. I'm okay, but I think Tom's actually, he's got like a good swing. It looks good, you know? I think it might have just been one of those days that it's just like, it's, it was not his day. How about your favorite golfer? Oh, man. Uh, I think growing up, like Tiger Woods, I, I think for everybody, right? Like R.A., right. watching him kind of come of age and just dominate. It's hard to, like, pick anybody else other than right. him. I've gotten to play with Phil a little bit, though, uh, right. and he's fun to play with, fun to spend time with. So uh, I just root for the guys I get to know. How about best football position for golf? Because you play with tons of guys in the league. Who's actually – like, quarterbacks are generally pretty good, I think. Yeah, decent, decent. I would say kickers and punters, too. Because they have like, so much time. They don't do shit. It's a good gig if you can get it. It could be if you get <laughs> one of those guys kicks like Adam Vinatieri's going on 25 years. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's can, a nice you can do it forever, man. So you're, you're facing COVID. Uh, it's a different year. I, I've heard you speak about this, about some of the things you were getting guys together on, you know, some of the smaller focused targeted sessions. You know, what's the hardest part about organizing the drills? I mean, certainly, but the coaching aspect of it. There's no coach to reinforce you know, the drill that you're putting on, you're now a coach and the quarterback. Yeah, I think, I think, I think it's easier, uh, you know, being at this stage of my career, uh, you know, than it was like when we were locked out in 2011, it was kind of overwhelming as a younger player of trying to get everything organized, trying to get people together. So it reminds me a little bit of, of that experience that we had then. It's different though, because back then, I mean, we could really, you could get your whole team together if you wanted to back then, you know, with this COVID right. deal, you have to keep the numbers uh, down and you got to make sure, you know, guys are, you don't want to pressure guys into doing it if they're not comfortable doing it. You just have to be aware of, of, you know, different people feeling differently about it. But I've been lucky. We've, we've all, um, you know, 
we've all kind of stayed healthy, been on top of what we're supposed to yeah. do at this point, the guys that have gotten together. And so it's been good. I think the coaching aspect of it sometimes is it's almost even better when you remove coaches from it. Uh, not to say that, our, you know, our guys don't do a great job, but you get to spend time, you know, explaining things from my perspective and why I need, you know, certain guys in certain spots and, and for them to save, you know, space on the field in a certain way. I think you don't really get that chance uh, with the way our, our off seasons are currently set up. You, you know, as well as anybody, I mean, your time structure in the building. Yeah. I mean, you don't have much time. It's not yours. And there's a lot of inefficient work too. And especially on defense, like I really feel like we're in the building 10 hours a day because of the offense. And, you know, <laughs> it would be unfair to send the defense home while y'all are grinding away. But the reality is, as a D lineman, I study and have to study far less than you do in your receivers. And, you, you're, you're trying to explain to a guy the minutia of if you're not breaking here, you're not going to get the ball, you know, right. that sort of thing. Like, you know, for us, it's, it's assignment, alignment and repetition. So I think it's unique. And, and especially like you're you've got kind of a nice situation because in your division, continuity is going to be huge. Say you guys play this season. I mean, there's two teams, a lot of continuity in your division right now. OK, it's 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 you and New Orleans, your, your favorite team. And <laughs> on the other side of the division, you've got new quarterbacks, um, new system in one place and, and, and you know, albeit a, a Hall of Famer, but a new guy in Tampa. So uh, how, how much of a challenge is it for you to get on the same page with somebody like Hayden Hurst? I mean, you've got a good rapport with Julio, with Calvin, with these guys, but Todd, Hayden. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Those are the guys. To me, those are the guys that it's critical, right? Like, we have the same coordinator back, which is huge. A lot of the same key position guys back. It's going to be no problem getting you know the rhythm and timing back with Julio. We already have you know however many game reps. We already speak the same language. He already right. knows you know what I'm talking about when I'm saying certain things. I think it's been really important to spend time you know with Hayden. And I, I've spent a ton of time with him this offseason. And, uh, you know, credit to him. I mean, he's been driving back and forth. Jacksonville's home for him. And he's been, you know, driving back and forth from Jacksonville for the last, I don't know, like nine weeks, 10 weeks. Wow. And uh, spending three or four days a week here, you know, getting to spend some time on the field. And, and just, I think more so than anything, just to get to know me and then just to get to hear, hear the, the terminology, hear how I talk, hear, you know, Here's what I mean when I'm saying this, like just right. little stuff like that. It goes a long way because, you know, inevitably when we get to the season, like he just needs to know what I'm talking about. You don't yeah. have you don't have that much time to, to be able to explain things when you're game planning and trying to just get ready for a week. So I think, you know, honestly, I think it's it's maybe been a blessing that we only have one new guy really in the passing game uh, that we've had to break in and we've had to do it this way where it's just been he and I spending so much time together. Is this the best group you've ever had skill-wise? It's got to be right up there. You know, I, yeah. I, I think so. I've been lucky. You know, I've, I've had some, some great guys that I've played with. So, you know, I think it's hard to say if this is the best. We had a pretty good unit in 2012 with, you know, Roddy White, Julio Jones, uh, Michael Turner, Tony Gonzalez. I mean, those guys were all yeah. pretty good. But Tough. i got to imagine, you know, this is – you know, right up there with them. I think yeah. you're talking about Julio in his prime, Calvin Ridley going into year three, coming into his own. You got Todd Gurley, who's hungry, who wants mm -hmm. to, you know, prove it this year. Hayden Hurst, another guy, first round draft pick, who, who just ended up in a spot where, you know, the way they were running the football, 
I mean, it, it was no fault of his own. It just Yeah, you never know what he could turn out to be in the passing game. And then also he had to share that load with a lot of dudes. I mean, they had a lot of options there. So I think it'll be great. How about like COVID, the prospect of maybe no fans? I'm not saying we're not going to have fans, but if you don't, what are you thinking about as a quarterback? Like, I, I think about like as a rusher, if I was playing somewhere like Seattle and I get five sacks a year on crowd noise, Oh, yeah. How is my year going to change for a quarterback communication, you know, silent count? Like, have yeah. you thought about all that stuff? The thing I think about the thing that's going to be a pain in the ass if there's if there's no uh, if there's no noise is how often we're going to have to change like audible words, code words, cadence, like because you guys are so good. I mean. You talk about from the D line perspective, you know, when you're playing at home at a place like Seattle. Yeah, you're going to get five snaps a game where you're off the ball before the tackle's ready to go. But by the same token, if you're just getting into the rhythm of our cadence and listening to, you know, listening to it over and over, you know, going against guys in practice, you get used to going against that same quarterback all the time and and you kind of get into, you know, how they sound. So, you know, from my perspective, I think it's going to be like a lot of work of, of, you know, hiding our code words, changing our code words, and then really working on ways to use our cadence yeah because you know we, we we we're thinkers too matt listen you guys are cheaters on that side of the ball <laughs> you know it hey you're always offside about, yeah what about yeah that's what we say about the tackles which is actually reality <laughs> um you know it's almost like when y'all score more points the ratings go up so what about what about did you see these helmets that they're talking about these prototype helmets like that looks wacky i mean it's got to terrify you for for a position player it's one thing but if you got to put on some halo looking helmet on for your vision and your periphery, like, isn't that kind of how that's going to work? Yeah. Like I, 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 you know, I just don't know how, you know, how, how you could do it. So I'm sure if push comes to shove and you got to make it work, we'll figure it out. Yeah. I'm yeah. hoping that's not the case. Yeah. It looks like a lacrosse helmet. It looks yeah. like somebody, you know, at, I uh, feel like the sides of it would be tough, you know, for us. I mean, your peripheral vision is, is huge, particularly, for like pass rush, you know, yeah. like just feeling that flash on the side of you is is huge for movement. So I just don't want to get. I'd love to be a left end this year and unabated, you know, yeah. uh, on somebody's ball hand side. I mean, the, the helmet might make it really tough to, to anticipate that. So joining me now uh, on the Green Light Pod, somebody I used to uh, look at from the other sideline when he was with the Cardinals, uh, head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Bruce Arians. Tom, okay, Tom Brady, that's what everybody wants to talk to you about. But, you know, you've got a guy who uh, is, most people would call him the GOAT. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to weigh in on that whole discussion, but you're a quarterback whisperer, well-known to be one. Um, do you have anything to whisper to him about? Like, what, like, what do you do <coughs> when you're dealing with somebody like Tom who probably knows he's made the mistake? He probably knows how to correct it. You guys are certainly brilliant um, in your own rights, uh, but coaching him has got to be way different than coaching other players, or is it? Uh, yes and no. I, I think it's a – for me, I, I love – I, I love his enthusiasm, his energy, uh, diving into our offense. And then hey, let's learn our offense. Then you and I sit down, hey, when, whenever we can, hopefully soon, and you tell me the 10 best things you like. 
and, and we're working together and, and mesh it out. You know, I, I want you going into that New Orleans game as comfortable as possible, whether stuff we do or stuff that you've done in the past and we rename it, but, uh, and we teach it the way you want it taught. And I love collaboration. I've always, that's the most fun in coaching is me is collaboration with quarterbacks and, uh, picking plays and picking game plans and, and those types of things. And you know, Tom's been fantastic. And uh, the fact that, that, that he has his resume, um, he's acting like a rookie right now. Right. And, uh, and I love it. Yeah. I've always said he was one of, you know, I only spent a year up there in new England, but he, he was always one of the most every man superstar quarterback leaders that I've ever been around for somebody with such a transcendent brand. He truly was inquisitive. He took coaching. He treated all his teammates with respect. And obviously right now there's not as much, you know, full team congregation. But I remember he would treat the 53rd guy on the roster just like the first. And I think that's huge. Uh, and I think that'll translate. But schematically, you guys push the ball down the field. That's what you do. Um, obviously with Jameis, he was very aggressive. Tom's arm isn't what it used to be. How do you guys collaborate on the type of tougher throws that you're used to seeing um, that maybe he can't make at this stage, which is fairly reasonable. He's 43 years old. Yeah. I mean, he made the best statement, man. Throw it to the dude that's open. Right. And it, is it the deeper? Now in our offense, he, maybe he hasn't been allowed to look deep first, you know, but still got to get it out of your hand. You can't hold on to it. Right. And, uh, but we do look deep on majority of our stuff down to short, but we have a lot of stuff where we work short to deep. Right. And, uh, you know, and we, we run a ton of empty, which he's done well. And the play action game that they've used in the last four or five years is almost identical to ours. And uh, so, yeah, I think for him, it's just learning the language, you know. And I, when I reevaluated all his tape, I didn't see, I didn't see a poor arm. No. But when, when he had guys deep, he hit them. Right. His deep ball accuracy was outstanding. <laughs> he just didn't have that many speed burners, you know. Yeah. What do you, what do you think is tougher, working short to deep or working deep to short? I mean, obviously, I don't know much about the position other than trying to chase him down. But well, I, I think it's always easier short to deep. Yeah. You know, if the guy's open in the flat, take it and yeah. get to the next down. Uh, but sometimes <clears throat> you have to know the matchups. All right. If we have Mike Evans in the slot and for whatever reason, we catch him on a safety one on one. Yeah. Take the deep shot. I don't, third, I don't care if it's third and two. Right. Taking, you mm -hmm. know, it's just knowing your matchups. And I think that's where Tom will relish in our offenses is when we create these matchups and he knows he's got them is to exploit them. You'll have so many matchup problems for other teams. I mean, listen, your division is, uh, is stacked, but any team is going to look at your weaponry and say, golly, I mean, if somebody emerges as the three and four uh, threat, because I know you like to push the ball down the, the field, you like four, four guys outside on the field at different times. I mean, pick your poison. You've got that. You can run 13 personnel. I know that you're going to rely heavily on 12. I mean, people complain about O.J. Howard's uses last year, but he played a ton, and he was a big part of what y'all did. Yeah. You know, like with the tight ends, how do you, how do you balance that? Because you've got three guys that can catch the ball and be a part of what you do. How do you sell blocking and, and the dirty work to guys that might want touches? Yeah, I, I think it's the same at wide receiver. You know, I, I look back to Heinz Ward. He was kind of the bell cow. Of, I block, you block, I throw you the ball. 
All right, you block. I design stuff for you in the red zone to get touchdowns. And Gronk is a notorious blocker. He loves blocking. Yeah. You know? So that that just permeates in the room. All right, the top guys doing it. Everybody's going to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, our, and OJ and Cam both. Man, they they blocked their ass off last year. They gave us all the effort in the world. Right. And uh, and again, it's just <clears throat> finding matchups. And and we had OJ two or three times last year that his numbers might have been better if we hit him. You know, I guess think right. back to Houston game on a double move, and we had him and we missed him to win the game. And uh, so yeah, it was. Uh, I always get criticized. I don't use the tight end, but when I had Heath Miller, he went to the Pro Bowl. My guy, Heath, because because yeah. yeah. but Ben Roethlisberger loved Heath Miller. Yeah, that was his security blanket. You know, so it's it's just building that chemistry. Yeah, and by the way, Heath just moved out of town. We uh, he he moved back to Pittsburgh. He 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 had had enough of small town life. He wanted to go back up to the Steel City. So is that right? Yeah, he just he because you know me and Heath played together at Virginia. We we yeah. overlapped by a year and. Um, yeah, we we were five miles apart here for a while, and then he just he just rolled out. I guess he something about the Steel City. <laughs> he went back home. I would too if I was Heath Miller. They love him up there. I mean, oh man, he's God. He is God. Yes, indeed. So one of the most consistent and reliable people I've ever been around as a player and a person. Um, you know, Gronk with the blocking thing. You mentioned that. You know, we know he's a, a good blocker. He was a couple years ago. I've seen pictures of him. We all deflate when we leave the game. I think some people think we get off the juice or something. But when you stop pounding calories and lifting weights every day, uh, guys get skinny. How's Gronk's transformation back into a football player going? And do you ever have? Have you ever had experience dealing with a guy who had to come out of retirement? Uh, yeah, a couple. But uh, yeah, he's. I mean, he never got too low. I mean, he's almost. I think he's around two sixty two, sixty three. But I don't really. He doesn't need to be two seventy again. Right, two seventy five. Just get two sixty five max, and uh, and and take that weight off your body, and and uh, you'll you'll be better because I mean that ten pounds isn't helping your blocking that much. You know, no. it's, a, it's those squats and those things, and uh, you know he's he's working his ass off right now and uh, and ready to go. So I, I think the explosion is still in his body, uh, but not a sixty play a game guy. Right. Main event here, Father's Day. When you got a dad like mine, every day is Father's Day. Love my pops, and everybody always wants him on the show. But the, we got to give the people what they want. I got, I got my dad on. I got him queued up on Zoom, which uh, is no small feat for any dad right now. And we are in separate rooms in the same house <laughs> on different computers, conducting a podcast on Father's Day. What's up, dad? I'm doing great. Happy Father's Day. What's your best moment as a dad? What, your highlight reel as a dad? Give me, uh, give me the number one. Oh, God, there were so many. Uh, I don't think there's a number one. I mean, certainly with you, it was, you know, the down in Atlanta, I mean, down in Houston and, and playing Atlanta in the Super Bowl. And, you know, that, that day ran the gamut of emotions because not that I had talked you into going to, you know, New England, but, you know, I, I'm trying to push you in a direction or, or give my two cents on what direction gave you the best opportunity to win because there's nothing like winning a championship. And I think, 
I felt somewhat responsible when I think the score was what twenty eight to three in the fourth <laughs> yeah, You felt like an asshole. And I was like the worst dad in the world. And it's you know, I can't help you with your chemistry homework, but I should at least be able to help you a little bit with football. And it, it didn't look good. And and to watch that comeback and to see you see the emotion on your face and to have Waylon and Meg there and you know, it, it was just fabulous. It really was. That was a that was a great moment. And I go back to Cove Creek. Cove Creek yeah. was another great moment where Little League. You know, thirteen year old league, yeah. We go from Little League down in McIntyre to uh down to Cove Creek, which was another league in a bigger field. And um, you know, there were a lot of kids who were really, really good in Little League and you know, at some point genetics kind of catches up and it caught up that 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 one final two weeks of the playoffs and, and the championship game and you end up winning the MVP of the league. And yeah, I don't remember much about that other than hitting five dingers in, in a weekend. Oh, I remember and I'm just fucking with you. I was just saying, I remember, I remember my exact that. stats. We were the fifth best team in a league of five. Okay. Which is a small league, but you know, this, this Cove Creek, it has so many levels of competition. So huh. we were number five by a wide, like, the only reason we made the playoffs because they said every team makes the playoffs. We played the first seeded Diamondbacks. They had a kid named Jeremy Crawford, who yep. was a bad ass dude, and that dude was hitting bombs like he was twenty three, and he had a mustache, the whole nine. Yeah, um, we beat the Diamondbacks maybe twenty one fourteen or something crazy. Yep. We beat the Phillies, <clears throat> and then we beat the Mets in the championship. And, and they, it was, they actually in the championship game they actually walked you with the bases loaded to walk in the tying run because you had hit, you know, two home runs that day. A few days. Uh, so I, I remember like it was yesterday. Um, yeah, that's good. Know. That was the original playoff run. The, the Eagles playoff run was improbable, but Cove Creek 1998 might have been the most in my career. Hey, what about when, what's a period in my life that you've been the most nervous or scared for me? Ooh, that's a good one. I think when you make the transitions, <clears throat> you know, the same thing that I was nervous and, you know, I don't know, scared is maybe not the right word, but really nervous. It, it, for me, it was um, going through the busing riots in Boston uh, and being raised by my grandmother and, you know, growing up in a few different homes. And my grandmother reaching out to my Uncle Billy, who had two kids and two adopted kids, and taking me in working in the projects and making no money, building, you know, doing painting on the weekends. So working seven days a week. And I, <clears throat> I just remember him having that hole in the passenger side of the Maverick, the side of a size of a basketball. And he drove every day an hour into work and an hour back home and then painted houses on the weekends. And we, we didn't have much money. And uh, to make that transition, I'd never played organized sports. I'd never played on one team. And we walk in there and a high school coach sees me there. And, and, and it was that kind of a transition for you where you're going out for high school football. Unfortunately, you have the burden. And it was something that I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about when we had kids. There's that added burden of you being my son. And the expectations and the, the pressure and all of that and, you know, making that transition and watching the player that you became, you know, throughout your, the course of your career in high school and then making the transition to college. It, it was like for me, I, <clears throat> that was a frightening time. I remember, you know, the first 
first week of training camp at Villanova, and I'm I'm sure you had the same kind of nerves, and you know, and you guys had a really Al good, good physical team, and mm-hmm. your practices were <clears throat> were very physical. Um, that transition, and then of course the transition to pro football. But you know, you uh, and I've said this many times. You just you're a 15 rounder. You uh, you're hard to kill. Uh, you're like, what's that? What's that character Denzel Washington plays? And uh, uh, there's three. I three feel like all of Denzel's roles are pretty. He's hard to kill in almost all his. Yeah, movies. I was gonna I, say uh, maybe a cockroach for me. <laughs> he, yeah, he's uh, he was t- he's tough in those movies. Let's do some mailbag from the fans here, okay? Yeah, you got it. Uh, this is from Riley Welker. Uh, for your dad, what was your favorite game to watch when I played? This is, I guess, me asking a question. In my career, what was your favorite game to watch? Maybe not Super Bowls, because those are obvious, and I don't want to make you choose sides. You know, there were so many games in <clears> – I, I would say, obviously, we talked about uh, the Super Bowl down in Houston, and and then uh, to follow that up, the improbable follow-up of, you know, deciding to leave New England and going to Philadelphia and – you know, reestablishing yourself literally from the ground up uh, because people don't realize when you make that kind of a transition that, you know, you've got to earn every, every ounce of and every minute of playing time. Especially when you're older. Yeah. Yeah. And to watch what you did through the course of that year and the, the number of, that was really the thing. Being in New England was about being selfless. Being in New England was about being part of a program and the program's bigger than you. And, you know, where you play week to week depends on what's best for the program. And that's not for everyone. And going to Philadelphia and having the opportunity to turn it loose to a great extent at a position that you're used to playing. Yeah. And watching the number of big plays that you made to contribute and particularly late in games was so much fun to watch. There was a fun run. I was thinking back to your career and, you know, you did a great job of shielding me from, from being aware of, you know, how special your career was or, you know, how different you were going to work every day and being a part of, you know, being a Super Bowl champion, a pro bowl and all that stuff. You were just my dad. So when I turn the TV on, I always tell the story about when you were playing the bills game uh, in the snow and how cold was it again? 27 below and just going back and forth this is when i'm maybe six years old because it was 91 maybe or 90 91 yeah 89 91 so we were just me and my buddy blake solomon shout out to blake solomon i don't know if you still listen if you listen to green light pod somewhere wherever you are uh we were just playing nhl on sega and we were going back and forth as if it wasn't a big deal that you were playing the game so I'd always love to go back and watch more games and maybe that I've never seen you play, you know, Washington in the Super Bowl, like front to back. I want to see that game, you know, or maybe one of those chippy games. So I'm going to dive into the, uh, the film room now that I have access. You want to watch the Washington game in 83 in Washington. Okay. We lost to set up the Super Bowl rematch. Got it. Got it. Okay. I'll start there. Somebody said, Hank uh, says, ask him, between you and your brother, who would be better with a flat top and who would be an evil henchman in a in an action movie? Oh, I'd say easy. You're the flat top. I've seen the flat top on you. At yeah, right with the now. wind, the wind hits right on the sea Uh, You know, I got a little bit of a, a right baby around belly. right around Whalen's age. I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had a really good flat top. And uh, Kyle. Yeah, uh, easy. 
he's built for the he's he's a total evil you know listen not only does he look just like uh unfortunately the guy that got backed into the propeller in in the indiana jones movie and we all know that scene yeah. <laughs> uh but he has phenomenal villain range i mean i could see him you know being sea bass and dumb and dumber kicking in the, the stall door i could see you know him being a villain in roadhouse blood sport he could be a villain in almost any genre or subgenre of movie. Yeah, yeah, no, bring in the Kraken. You know, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's him. Uh, <laughs> Ryan Taylor, uh, both of us. Who is your favorite quarterback to sack? Uh, you know, I, I'd have to say the one that was probably the most challenging to sack. I know who you're going to say. Uh, and it was the one I saw so much was John Elway. Um, and to add to that, when you're playing up in Denver, people don't realize, you know, that altitude is real. And, <laughs> you know, if they go no huddle the first drive and they drive the length of the field and then your team turns the ball over really quickly and you're back on the field again, you're digging down to a place that you've never dug before. And John was was really ahead of his time uh, from a from an ability standpoint. His ability to, you know, bootleg, throw the ball you know, 70 yards downfield across the field. He was he was Patrick Mahomes before Patrick Mahomes. <clears throat> and I don't know that they really knew what to do with it initially, and they tried to fit a square peg in a round hole, but then they they found their their stride. And and unfortunately for him, or fortunately for him, he, he ends up winning back-to-back -back Super Bowls and retiring. But the John you saw in those Super yeah. Bowls was not the John that I saw. Uh, and I was happy that he got the two Super Bowls. and happy for him but he was probably my favorite to compete against elway in the helmet with the bull durham logo and the bright orange uniforms was different than elway in those hideous uh you know those those yeah. weird pant stripes and yeah and the uh the, the well you've the seen it you've seen his helmet in the gym yep yep that's one of the good ones you got there you got a lot of great helmets i i, I would say for me you know, two guys that I had hat tricks against and Russell, I had a few hat tricks against, but Drew and Drew Brees and Russell Wilson for Drew Brees. I mean, that's the best player I sacked a lot. Now, Eli Manning, I damn near finished and, and, and ended my career with um, sack one was Eli and sack 69 was Eli or 68 because then my last sacks were two against the Sean Watson. Russell Wilson should have been should have been four should have been three or four I missed one that yeah. just haunts me but I, you know how bad I just wanted to get to 70 and call it a day yeah uh you know I Russell for me because it was a division rivalry it was heated their own line were and I respected them but they were a Tom Cable group they were a bunch of pricks so yeah to hit him and we were stacked up front and we hit him a lot you know me and Rob would have multiple three sack games against them and most of those games we'd lose was wasted yeah it was wasted. They were um, wasted but i love russ because you know we both saw russ growing up he really is uh you know a, a classy dude and uh a dude that has been almost under underappreciated in his career and as much as i'm saying drew Brees is that's my hall of famer that mm -hmm. i love i'll put that picture up for my kids to see all the times i sack drew russell might end up being better this is one that doesn't need a lot of introduction. I got Steve Kerr. If you don't know who Steve Kerr is, you don't do sports or you don't do championships. He's won plenty of them, eight of them to be exact. 
in the NBA as a player and a coach. One of the things that's gotten us through this crazy time and the normalcy that it brought was pretty palpable. Uh, and it, all you had to do was get online was was the last dance. I mean, and you and I had talked a little bit about it, um, getting you on to talk about it. Uh, I, I loved I loved seeing you featured heavily in that thing and, and your story, which I knew, I thought it was illuminating for a lot of people. And, and you were very vulnerable and honest, which I thought was awesome. Speaking of vulnerability, one of the things you took away was that Mike was more vulnerable. And sometimes you wondered if he was a robot. I know you said that before, that he was a machine. Uh, did, did you enjoy watching it? Like, what was, that, what was that like for you? Because I know you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you're to a degree like the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, um, it was really interesting to watch. You know, I watched with my kids. They were toddlers when all that was going on. So that part was really fun because I had never seen most of that footage. So to go back uh, in time and, and see what, uh, what, that, what my life was like for my kids, um, you know, just watching it with them was amazing. Uh, and then it brought back a lot of memories and it opened up some old wounds too, you know, and, and um, it was a really powerful documentary. I thought uh, Jason Hare did a phenomenal job directing it. Um, but, you know, there, stuff happens, right? You just, it opens up old wounds. Guys start thinking about stuff. Certain guys aren't featured. You know, I was a little disappointed that Luke Longley, who was our starting center uh, all those years, Ron Harper, uh, starting guard, we barely heard anything about, about them. Although Ron delivered one of the best lines of the documentary. Which was? Uh, it was dealing with uh, guarding MJ in the, in the Cleveland series <laughs> uh, when he hit the shot over Crick. Craig Elo. <laughs> uh, it, it was something uh, laced with profanity, something to the effect of, fine, you want Craig to guard him, Craig can guard him. <laughs> That's right. That was a good line. Yeah. That was good. Uh, but, you know, there was there was some of that. You know, watching it, it was good because we got reconnected. Um, we ended up – I ended up talking with a lot of teammates um, and texting them and, and just sharing old memories. And, and that part was fun. Um, but yeah, it brings up a lot of good memories and bad ones and everything in between. And uh, I think there's a reason teams generally don't want cameras behind the scenes, right? Uh, that stuff is really personal. And yes. uh, you guys have had hard knocks. Have, have, were you ever on a team with that did hard knocks? No, and I prayed that I never was, Steve, because we, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and you can identify with this. What y'all had is cool. Especially if you're MJ, because you have the lock and key on the the editorial last um, the the last set of eyes on it, and you know. But to to your point, you know, throughout my career, I was on some bad teams. My first eight years of my career, most people remember me being a champion late in my career. But I played in St. Louis on really bad teams that were often in the running. If we weren't, if we were more entertaining, if more people cared, it's bad when you're bad and nobody cares. If you're the Cowboys and you're bad, cameras will flock. Um, right. <laughs> you know, we we flirted with it. I was nervous about it. I know the Eagles had, you know, that Amazon thing this year where it was kind of all access. I was very glad. I talked to my friends. I was very glad that I was not a part of that team just for that reason. I would have loved to keep playing, but, you know, it, it, it would have put me in a weird bind. You don't know how to act when the cameras are around. And that's why, like, part of it, I know people are saying, like, yeah, it was unprecedented access. And, yeah, it felt real. But when athletes are in a locker room and there's a camera on, you're never getting the true, you know, back mm -hmm. and forth. And I could feel that a little bit. Yeah, I think so. And although I will say that after a while, 
you know, they were there every day. And after a while, it was yeah. almost like, you know, they just blended in. You know, the first the first couple of months, it was really weird. And especially because Phil Jackson had always been a coach who felt like the locker room was sacred, you know, that you couldn't just have anybody walk in. And so our locker room was really private. And then all of a sudden we go into that season in 98 and Phil says, well, there's going to be a camera crew following us around. We're all like, wait, what? What the hell? But, but I, I would say by mid season, it was kind of like, you know, they're, they're just, there they are. And they're also following Michael around the whole time. So they were easy to avoid if we wanted to. And, um, and I think after a while, we just, we just, they, they just kind of blended in. So it wasn't too intrusive. There were almost three functionalities to the series for me. And one was for the young people now who watch first take and just digest comparisons all day. They don't even know who they're comparing LeBron or Kobe, God mm -hmm. rest his soul, to. It's one thing to look at stats. You know, it's one thing to look at highlights, but to live it as a sports fan, which I got to, it was really cool. But even for somebody my age, the first three-peat was ancient history to me. I'm six years old when they play the Pistons. So yeah. it was illuminating for me in the middle. It was illuminating for younger people. And then for older people, it was a blast of nostalgia. I, and you arrived right before Mike came back, a year or two before Mike came back, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And um, that's, those were the two years he went and uh, played baseball. And, and it actually, that, that period turned my career around because I was in about my fifth year, but I was kind of on my way out of the league. I, um, I was a free agent. I had no offers and, and the Bulls offered me a spot. And part of the reason I played so much that year was because Michael was gone. You know, he, he left a, a void and, and uh, a lot of minutes. And, and so I was able to kind of resurrect my career while he was gone. And, and then when he came back, it was like, incredible just to to realize okay now you know we are we're going to get a chance to compete for a championship and and what that means individually you know I, I don't know i'm sure it's different in football but in basketball you know when you're competing for a championship and there's it's the titles are generally driven by your best you know two three players right so we we knew Michael was driving these championships with Scotty and obviously they had, you know, Dennis Rodman um, taking care of the, the, the glass and, and those three guys were our stars. But the thing with, with that, with basketball is you always have a chance to have a moment, you know, um, where you're going to get the ball and you're going to be in big moments. And even though you're not driving the championship run, you're going to be able to play a part in it. And, uh, and that was really exciting, but also nerve wracking. You know, you didn't want to screw up. And yeah. uh, so that, that was a big part of learning to adjust to play with Michael. He was such a big star. We didn't really know him that well. But, you know, if he threw you the ball, you, you felt you felt <laughs> you his, the right thing with it. And you did that. You did the yeah. right thing with a game six. I, I loved I loved seeing you. He was like, yo, like, keep this keep this on the low, Steve, like, here's what we're going to do. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> you're yeah. like screaming to the camera. Yeah, like <laughs> <laughs> so great. But I mean, when you show up on the scene, you're hearing about the lore of Michael Jordan. I'm pretty sure right. he's in Birmingham. He's not visiting the team until BJ yeah. asked him to come back. And which I thought was really cool. BJ seemed like a really good teammate. He seemed like he was a, a, a nice force to have in the locker room. But I, um, 
I figure you're sitting there and you're hearing about Mike. What was that lore like? What were people saying about him? And did you ever have a sense? Was it like a foregone conclusion that he was just gone for a bit and that he was coming back? No, we didn't really ever sense that he was coming back. Uh, to that point, um, you know, we a lot of us had played against him, but but most of us hadn't played with him. And so BJ uh, and John Paxson, who was a player, uh, was a teammate for a year, and then became a, a broadcaster and a coach. Yeah. But he was a really good uh, mentor for me. Uh, so those guys kind of shared with me. Bill Cartwright also, kind of what kind of guy Mike was and, and uh, you know, what it was going to be like to play with him. But I thought BJ said something really interesting in the documentary, which was that, you know, the, the guys on the first three, Pete, came up with Michael before he became Michael Jordan global superstar. And so they got to know him a lot better. Uh, for us on the second three, Pete, he was already this, this icon and we never got to know him that well because he was always being swept away by his security guys to write to the hotel, to his suite. You know, we never really went out with him and had dinner with him. And, and BJ made that point. I thought it was a really good one. It was almost like we were, you know, teammates with this icon instead of this human being. And so it was hard to, to relate to him. Welcoming... Matt Barnes now to the Green Light Pod. This is a guy who I always admired for his tough attitude in the NBA. I always thought he could have played football. Um, and now he's got a great podcast, All the Smoke with Steven Jackson. You talk about weed. I mean, you've talked about mental health or cannabis. It was funny. Frank Shamrock told me that uh, he goes, you got to stop calling it weed because I've never picked up a weed and smoked it and, it. and it hurts, you know, the way we talk about cannabis. Call it cannabis. Mm -hmm. So Shamrock, I got you. Cannabis and mental health. You're pro-cannabis. You've talked about depression and that sort of thing. What's the functionality for you? Um, I started, I grew up in a household that was filled with, filled with drugs. I think feel like my parents were func functioning drug addicts. Um, my dad was also a drug dealer. Um, so there was a lot of violence, abuse um, growing up. But the one thing, so I saw cocaine at an early age. I saw everything you can imagine at an early age, but I remember the one thing that used to kind of calm my dad at the end of the day was when he would smoke a joint. And I didn't know at the time, I'm three, four or five years old, just kind of coming into realizing what this world is. And I realized like oh, my dad is works hard. He butcher by day, drug dealer by night, but I would seen him whip hell of people's asses. Like he was a badass to me, you know what I mean? So, but the one time I saw him cool, calm and collected and kind of sociable with us and in a good mood was at the end of the day when he was smoking joints. So that always stuck with me. And then when I was 14, I stole some weed from him and started smoking and, and never really looked back. Was um, it good weed? Um, at the time, no. It was, yeah, some uh, Reggie. <laughs> I was in, yeah, I was in, you know, I mean, I was in Sacramento. So once I kind of got in the game and I had my other homeboys, like, yeah, I'm on, what's going on? Like being in Sacramento, we, we had a cheat code. So after the first time I was always smoking good weed, but I smoked it through high school, through UCLA and through my whole career, you know, and I was never someone who can take painkillers. They always killed my stomach. I'm a social drinker. I'll drink in public, but I'm not really, you're not going to catch me at home drinking. But smoking was something that always allowed me to escape my crazy life slow my mind down, sleep, um, took pain away at a later time. And then I just enjoyed being a kind of being, being able to go, 
leave my current situation and kind of be somewhere else mentally for a little while. So it always helped me. And then fast forward 25 years later, now they have doctors saying that it does everything I just mentioned. You know, it helps with stress. It helps with focus. It helps with sleep. It helps with depression. It helps with, you know, eating. You name it. You know what I mean? So it helps with everything. So it, it's it's come a long way. And, I, and, I, and I'm very happy with that. Um, I took on being an advocate right out of the league. You know, I was someone who got caught two times. Um, you get three strikes in the NBA. The third time is you're suspended five games without pay. So I was, I was, I got caught like 2.75 times. I allowed to yeah. allow tear myself in twice. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then I, and then I exited stage left, but I just wanted to be that advocate because when I was in there, you know, the, the NBA has a little bit over 400, uh, 400 players in it. Over 200 guys were in the, uh, the NBA drug program for just weed alone. You know, yeah. it's like, that's crazy. Like, and this is from your best, some of the best players in the world to rookies and everything in between. So I think the, the stigma slowly started lifting with the more education and research that came behind it now. And you, you see the leagues are starting to adjust their policies, which I think is great because fans don't understand is, you know, we have an opioid epidemic outside of the pandemic, uh, the pandemic of coronavirus and racism. Opioid pandemic is huge and it kills every, it, it's knocking everyone down. So when we're in sports, they're giving us everything from Tordol to Oxycontin to, you know, you name it. We Listen, man, I couldn't play without my shot of Tordol. And, yeah. and the reason I smoked, and this is one thing that sometimes irritates me about people's assumptions about you. If I say, and I came out and said, and I said it casually because I got caught on the Dan Patrick show. Dan Patrick asked me about marijuana. I, th I was like, man, if anybody knows me for all these years, I mean, I basically hinted at the fact and the things I'm interested in, the things I'm tweeting late at night. Like, don't you know I'm kind of high at night? Like, so I just kind of, I'm like you. I just spoke my mind when people were like, oh, he does it for pain. He does it for this. No, everybody has a different functionality for it. I think the commonality between the NBA and the NFL, it sounds like I need something to turn the volume down at night. You know, because like when you're on that treadmill with all that adrenaline, that violence in my game, the pressure, when I get home, I want to be a father to my kids. And that's not a wound tight guy. And I, and I can't sleep without it. Like for a while, I was on the sleeping pills and I was taking way too much. Right. Best day of my life was pouring those things down the drain. And this kind of came in a time where when I got in the league, you just kind of got what you could. But towards the end of my career, it was like, Oh no, we got dispensaries now. We go out to West Coast. I can snag something like guys can get you real medical stuff. So I was getting good strains that like work for me. So the game has changed. I think it's great. Is there anything you can't do high? Like, what do you not like doing high? Nothing. I played high. I, I take meetings high. It's me. I feel like I'm a better me. You know what I mean? And I think that us still being productive athletes and fathers and businessmen and whatever else we do, we, it's just been a stigma that's been holding this back for so long, you know, which is unfortunate. So I think, you know, the more education, obviously the better, but I think you also hit it on the head when you talk about even just an average person at the end of the night, everyone needs something to turn down. So some people turn to drinking, some people turn to sleeping pills, some people yeah. are on drugs, you know, but at the end of the day, to me, a joint has always just been what it was for me. I knew that I was I'm some, you know, being an athlete, sometimes you don't smoke, you know, our shit is crazy where we'll be in a situation where say we'll play Portland tonight and go into double overtime, but then we still have to leave, you know, so we, once that game's over, we'll, we hop on a flight, we're heading to San Antonio, we play a back-to-backs, so we're playing Tim Duncan on TNT the next night, so we're flying yeah. to San Antonio, get to San Antonio at three or four in the morning, you can't just go right to sleep, you know what I mean, so you're, you're going to sleep when the sun comes up, so then you got to be at your best 
to play Tim and Manu and Tony and the great San Antonio team. So it's just like, you don't understand what that travel. They don't know the grind of, and it's different in football. It's not like a baseball or basketball grind where we're not on the road as much, Right. but you know, it is. You guys are running into a wall every single day. What you guys do is, is, is almost on another level. Like I said, I was a football player at the beginning. My brother played, never made it to your uh, level, obviously, but just understanding. People understand you're running into a wall in practice, or not as much in practice, but in games. Every single game, you're running into a wall. You know what I mean? And nobody's body is going to feel good after that. But you could play high. Yeah. See, I, I never played high. I, like, there's... There's a few things I can't do high, okay? Number one, I don't like podcasting high when I'm talking to somebody that I don't know well because I can be like, I'm kind of paranoid and I could be like, that's a weird vibe or he doesn't understand what I'm saying. Like if I was high right now, I'd be looking at you on Zoom and I'd be like, he thinks this is the dumbest fucking question in the world. Uh, another thing I can't do high, okay? I can't get high in the kitchen. I do it all the time, but getting high in the kitchen is a bad idea because- you need to get, if you get high upstairs, this is the biggest cheat. If you get high upstairs and not in the fucking kitchen, you're not going to eat. You're not, you're going to be too lazy to walk downstairs. Once I'm on Call of Duty, I'm on Call of Duty. But if I'm in the kitchen and I'm blazed, I'm getting into the mochis, the popsicles, the ice cream, pork rinds, getting home from the bar. Right? My kids', kids foods, that's, yeah, that's they're the gone. Man, the kids' food is the problem. If I didn't have kids, I, I've been able to like, I've been doing this so long that I can, you know, hone my, my munchies to, I've, I, douse myself with fruit and, and granola, you know, bar stuff that's just not as bad as the bad stuff. But, you know, my kids, they get away with the cupcakes and the cookies and the Capri Suns and shit. And that's where I get in trouble at. They're Ice gone cream. and they're gone. You come down in the morning. It's not just like if I eat my snacks, I'm responsible. When my wife walks down in the morning is like, where the fuck are the chips? Ahoy. <laughs> that's like the reward for Waylon reading. Right. You know, like, so, I mean, I definitely hear you though. Like I, I talk to basketball guys and some football guys can play high. I, like, listen, before every night game of my career in the morning, I was hot. Right. Now, I've got a lot of buckets at night in big situations. So you can't mm -hmm. tell me that it, 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 it fucked up my play. I go, take a nap and wake up, kind of drink five cups of coffee, and I'm good to go. But somebody asked, um, this was, have you ever been too high? In high school. So in high school, let me tell you this story. But you remember Teen Wolf when, uh, yeah. just remember when they were moving and everything was just slow motion? Yeah. Like, so we cut school my, I think it was my senior year. So we're in this uh, tournament called the Jack Scott Tournament. And Kevin Johnson, former NBA player, mayor of Sacramento, he had won, he had set the record for winning MVP three years. So I won in my first three years. This is my senior year. I'm supposed to win in my fourth year. So we cut school. The first game I have, like in the 40s, the second game I cut school uh, the next day, and we take a gravity bong rip. So I take a gravity bong out of one of these big-ass Alhambra bottles. Like, you remember the big, we cut the bottom up. You were hanging out with white kids. You already know. You already know. So uh, I went to all white high school. Yeah. So they had me hitting this gravity bong like at two thirty. Played. I got so high that 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 game I probably had like four to six points. Airballed like two layups. Keep in mind the last the game before I had like forty. Easy, Matt. I averaged four to six points in high school. Yeah. Okay? I was the enforcer without the bong. No, I, I was. But so so all my friends drove in the bleachers laughing, knowing they're still <laughs> high. I'm high as fuck playing still. And then I so I had a terrible game that game. The next game, I came back and had a huge game, but I didn't get MVP because of that fucking oh, game. Oh, no. Game, so I didn't break the record. But that was the one time I was too high. But besides that, like, my routine was similar. Like, we would go have shoot-around, which is at 11 or 12 for an hour. I'd come home, smoke a joint, eat. I would take a nap then wake up, shower, and go to the game. You know what I mean? And by that time, I had smoked 
four or five hours before. I, I'm not someone that's going to smoke right before I play, no. like going in there because that's just oh, no. unprofessional. You stink, whatever. Yeah. But I would, you know, it was in my system. And like I said, it just allowed me to lock in and, and be me. So it yeah. was something that I always did through even in college. For you know? me, it just let me sleep like the day away because there's nothing worse than being an NFL player and knowing just sitting in your hotel room all day at because the, they put us in a hotel. I know you guys are like grownups, but even a home a home game, they <laughs> right. treat us like fucking kids. So I'm in, you're in like the airport Marriott and I'm staring out the window at a parking lot thinking about tackling Ezekiel Elliott at 8 p.m. <laughs> and all the pressure in the world. We only get 16 of them, so I got to sleep. We have an owner who has stepped to the forefront with everything going on in our country today, and that's Mark Cuban. Mark, how you doing, man? Good, man. How are you doing? Where are you from, Chris? I'm from Virginia. Virginia. Okay. I thought I'd detect a little Pittsburgh in that accent. No, no there's no there's no Pittsburgh. I, well, I was going to save this for the end, but uh, if you're buying an NFL team, which team is it and why is it the Steelers? Why is it the Steelers, right? <laughs> what was the best bar in Manhattan Beach? Um, Shellbacks is the best, but um, Hercules? So the day um, we sold broadcast.com, the company I sold to Yahoo, um, I just went and just got torched with some friends, right? And there was a booth that was there up until like three years ago at Hercules, right? And we sold the company for $5.7 billion in stock. And so I took one of the knives, you know, the burgers are just incredible, right? And I took one of the knives and I carved in 5.7B into one of the tables. And that was there for... I saw it. I think I saw it. Mark, I, I trained in, in Manhattan Beach. Uh, I, I trained there in the off season, like for two years. I loved it, except for when you leave the beach and then you're just yeah. caught in a mass of humanity. But I used to get tore up at that same bar. And somebody was like, that's where Mark Cuban, the story was distorted. They said when he made his first million, he carved his name. But that's good. There's some truth yeah, to so that. I story. carved it in there. And then, um, but my spot is Shellbacks with Rico. Okay. There. That's a popular one. Pat, okay, so Pat McAfee was hammering you on the president thing, okay? I'm not going to hammer you on the president thing, but I will ask you, if there's somebody in the, in the private sector or an athlete that you think uh, you, you would like to see on a ticket eventually, and I'm not trying to minimize what it takes to, to run. That's a great question. I hadn't thought about that. Um, who would be a good politician? Greg Popovich. He would be good. I got another spur for you, uh, and I know him a little bit through some charitable stuff. David Robinson to me. Yeah, D Rob would be great, man. He's, oh. he's, got, he's got a good heart, man. He's got he's got his head on straight. He can talk to anybody. I think he'd be great. Last thing, uh, you've talked about HGH. This is fascinating to me. Uh, yeah. I I could talk about this for a while. I never. It's so cloudy in the NFL. I don't know who's using it, who's not. I don't know how prevalent it is. But, you know, you do wonder that if it's better for your health, what's the difference? Where does the line get drawn between right. performance enhancing and, like, taking a protein shake or putting the right things in your body? Getting LASIK, right? Yeah. Jameis Winston. He might – the LASIK might fix everything. So, <laughs> so, so, number one, are you on the juice right now? No, I never have been. Number two, uh, do you think that's far off or, or is it realistic? So two different things here, right? Just being on the juice. When you're calling it juice, it means it's not doctor. Steroids. I'm. I'm. I'm yeah, no, no. About but but when you're calling it juice or whatever or HGH, it means it's not doctor administered, and that's right. the first thing, right? It's got to be doctor prescribed and administered. If it's doctor and prescribed administered, then it's not going to be for performance enhancement. It's going to be for repair of some sort, right? It's right. going to be for you to recover. And so I paid for the study, and it took too long. It took like four years to get it done. And effectively, what it came up with was that. Um, we took non-professional athletes that, and we took um, X number that actually got HGH to help them in their recovery. 
and others that got a placebo. And the recovery was 29% faster and the, the ligaments were much stronger on the HGH. Yeah. And so why would you not allow that if it's doctor administered? I see no problem. And the, the biggest issue is WADA, the, the um, World Anti-Doping Association, they've always, they just demonized it, right? There aren't right. even really studies that say it's a performance enhancing drug. They just jump to that conclusion because of some anecdotal evidence. And so there's no studies with everything, with anything really related to HGH. Is it harmful? Is it helpful? Whatever, other than the one I paid for. And so hopefully I'm going to be able to platform that and undertake other studies that will, will focus not on performance enhancement, but on recovery, because, you know, it costs next to nothing. And if you inject a couple of milligrams, whatever it is, and it all of a sudden you're going to be, you know, you're going to be up to speed faster and back to your job faster. You get the best product. Healthier. Why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. In the NFL, I mean, I remember I'd be, I'd just start feeling good on Saturday before a Sunday game. And if you leveled the playing field and everybody got that quote unquote performance enhancement, it's not performance. Yeah, it's enhancing. not enhancing, right? It's all the same, but you got to study it to make sure there's no, no problems with it. Right. And yeah. so you, you don't want to be in a situation where it causes diabetes or heart problems or this and that, but we really don't know. There's never been a, a long-term large enough study to determine one way or the other. For all we know, it can make everybody great. For all we know, it could just screw everybody up. But when you do, like we saw with my study, when you do it in a controlled environment for a specific purpose, in this particular case, it helps. And if we can continue to do that, look, whether it's ACL, whether it's, you know, MCL, whether it's Achilles, whatever it may be, if we can get you back on the field or the court healthier with less drop off, and I mean, why wouldn't you do it? Yeah, fans will see the best product quicker and and in the best way. And uh, I just do want to say this: if if you ever get on HGH, I rescind my offer to let you slap the shit out of me when I make a hundred million dollars. <laughs> I don't want to see new genics, Mark Cuban. You know, coming just rolling up on me with with yeah, me and Frank with Thomas or whatever. <laughs> Tom Morello is the guest today. If you know Rage Against the Machine, you know Tom. If you know Audio Slave, you know Tom. And if you have been paying attention to Tom, you know that he's involved in a plethora of musical uh, endeavors. How about uh, top three Bruce songs and favorite album? Top three. Ooh, okay. Favorite Bruce album is Nebraska. Um, it's the, you know, the, the, the dark folk album. And then I would go top three songs just off the top of my head. I'm going to go with The Promise. I'm going to go with uh, Adam Raised the Cane. Those of us with Dad issues. We love that one. Yeah. And lastly, I'm going to go with a little song called The Ghost of Tom Jogue. Hey, listen, and by the way, that's a great song. And I know that being respectful of the boss, I, the Ghost of Tom Jogue is one of the favorite recordings of, you know, of Rage that, that, that I have out there. So, I mean, right you guys on. absolutely killed that. It was unbelievable. And then I got to see the boss live on Broadway singing Ghost of Tom Jogue. And it's just like, for me being younger, in 2000, whenever that album came out, I'm a kid, and the yeah. first way I get introed into that is you guys. Mm, um, yeah, but also yeah, yeah. with parents who are big Bruce fans, I got to bring them to Broadway, actually. Funny enough, Tunnel of Love is one of my favorite Bruce albums. I know that sure, some people are like, sure. what? No, 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 no. Here's the thing about Bruce Springsteen is that that guy, wherever he turns his poetic lens, he does great work. Yeah. You know, if he's, if he's writing about dust bowl refugees, or if he's writing about like love, shaky, a shaky marriage, like yeah. he just, his, his poetic lens is just really 
fantastic. And so, I mean, he's a, he's a national treasure and we're yeah. glad that lucky to have him. Darkness on the edge of town. Also, that's, that's probably, yeah, my, that's my, my other one. My Nebraska favorite. and darkness. are yeah. My yeah. I, I love Nebraska though, because it's so unexpected from him and like mm. the height of his Bruce Springsteen-ness, you know, and global he popularity. Did he, he did that. He did that because that's the record he wanted to make. And that, you know, that's not the kind of decision that, you know, Michael Jackson was making or whatever, you know, whatever the stars yeah. at the time were. Um, and so it really sort of speaks to his integrity. They call as an him artist, the boss for a reason there. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, all right. So real quick, some, some other quick hitters. You're a Sabbath fan. And actually, oh, yeah. interestingly yeah. enough, I just found out they started selling Black Lives Matter t-shirts <laughs> because of you. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I, a, a, a friend of mine made that shirt and I put, it was on an Instagram, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's in sort of Sabbath lettering because Black Lives Matter. And I posted that on Instagram picture of me and my mom, you know, uh, with a Black Lives Matter sign and me wearing the shirt and Geezer Butler's you know, saw her Instagram, right. and you know, a week later, Sabbath is up. they're donating all of the proceeds. But the, that's pretty, pretty damn awesome. cool to grow up on Sabbath, and then you're like, are you uh, kidding? Influencing them? So are you kidding me? Like, hey, so I, so no, so the question is, what's the better album opener, War Pigs or Black Sabbath? Because I can't imagine in 1970, to, the band Black Sabbath comes out yeah. with an album called Black Sabbath cool. and a song called Black Sabbath. Yeah, well, I think that my favorite of of those two songs, I mean, War Pigs is like the jam. War Pigs might be the greatest metal song of all time. I'm going to go with that one. However, you're right in that in 1970, coming out of like the summer of love and all of these kind of like hippie bands and these kind of trippy, this trippy, you know, Bay Area music and Grateful Dead and whatnot. And these four dudes from industrial Birmingham come out with that song, which is about as kind of as evil as evil gets it's awesome it's like deal deal with this oh my god okay light <laughs> lightning round i'm gonna let you go okay you're a cubs fan you meet steve bartman yes. what do you do oh no i you know what first of all he, i'm i'm not a steve bartman apologist i'm a baseball fan i would know better to touch that ball but once we once we won the world series all is forgotten all is forgiven they gave him a ring so he's good. He's good, and give and, him a hug. You know, yeah, give him a, give him a hug. It's all good. It's all Where were you? If we had if we didn't have we didn't have a World Series by now. It's a different conversation. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, the happiest guy for the Cubs winning the World Series is Steve Bartman. It's not other, play, <laughs> not other players on the team. Where were you when you saw the Cubs win it all? I, I was in Cleveland. I was there. Oh, nice. Okay, I was, I was there. I was there. Tears streaming down my face. Oh and, my picture, God. and I brought my, my, my aunt Isabel, she's the one that got me in the Cubs. She lived 82 years and never saw it. So I brought a photograph of her to the game so she could witness with me. The next day I drove to the small town cemetery where she's buried, planted the W flag on her grave, popped a bottle of champagne and wrote the Chicago Tribune sports section front to back. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> how about, how about more Chicago folklore here? The Lala protest. Who was the most afraid to whip their dick out? <laughs> well that happened in philadelphia but it wasn't okay the, that was in the, philly okay okay yeah it was when it was a, when Lollapalooza was a was a tour that went city to city to city okay, yeah, yeah. and and and, and I, I will say that it was not a unanimous vote that i'll leave it at that it was not the unanimous vote. so joining me now to, to do one of my favorite things which is talk music forever 
you know, like just in circles, I could talk music. Uh, I know this guy can do the same. Dave Damashek, who is perfect for this exercise. We're talking about music. I love to talk about music, but this is a different twist. This is something that we kind of stumbled into. Dave and myself in in my mentions thinking about, uh, I forget what we were talking about, Dave. Do you remember? Yes. In fact, Bomani Jones was talking about music um, and you weighed in. He, he said something about the Eagles. Uh-huh. Is the Eagles. Exactly. And and you said, I usually leave the Eagles wherever I find them. And you said, although I do like Hotel California. Yes. That's a side note. You ever heard that the, that's a cursed song? You're not supposed to listen to it at night. You're an Angelino. Nat- uh, you're an Angelino native. You ever hear that one? Really? I've heard. I don't know. I never. I should. Uh, I guess I'm not inquisitive enough. I've never actually. The hairs on my neck are standing up because listen. And this is no dis- disrespect to the the Eagles. Uh, you know, my producer here, Cowboy Reed, loves the Eagles. I come to find out in our group text, I start I start firing. I'm like, guys, I got this idea for a segment. It's called System Bands. The Eagles for me are just there's only one functionality uh, to the Eagles for me. And, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But the whole concept of system bands like system players in, in pro sports are if they're on the more systemy side of the spectrum, they really need that one you know, functionality, that one setting, that climate, that, that place, that time to unlock their potential. And that's not necessarily a slight. It will be for some of these bands. But I put it in my group text. I go, this segment's killer. I don't know if anybody else likes it, but I really like it. And I think Dave might like it because we were talking about it. The Eagles are the perfect system band. And Cowboy Reads like, the Eagles are one of my mo- favorite bands. I listened to it with my dad growing up all the time. I'm like, well, shit. I don't mean Yeah, dis- well... No. Well, first of all, yes. Just to color it in a little bit. Yeah. You could call, I mean, there are only so many Russell Wilsons, so many John Elways in the world, so many Michael Jordans who can thrive in spite of whatever's around them, no matter what their um, uh, immediate surroundings, they're going to do well. Kirk Cousins is a system QB. Most bands, as you start to dig into it, or even if you love them, it's not. I'm not impugning anybody's taste in music, including my own. I consider some of the bands that I like to be ultimately cis. I just had never considered the notion of time and place means so much to most every band you can think of. And I always denounce the Eagles. I always thought, what kind of? I don't get that. Like soft '70s rock, it just ain't for me. I don't like Steve Miller. I don't know if they're in the yeah. same echelon, but I'm not a Steve Miller guy. Like that kind of. You know what it was for me. When I was a kid, I used to listen to the radio a lot, you know, like any kid, FM radio, and I listened to classic rock. So I was just inundated with so much Steve Miller band, so much Eagles. And by the way, it, it's not like I think the Eagles are bad, just objectively, um, they could use the right system. And, and Hotel California is one song, Desperado, another song, but mainly Hotel, Hotel California is a banger. That's an any system uh, song for me. I think I think take it to the limit. I like the the heart, but it never resonated for me until yeah, it, it's funny because you mentioned the Eagles. And then I was thinking just in the last year and a half or two, our mutual pal, I think Adam Carolla, was was disparaging the Eagles too. And I said, you know, I've kind of had a, 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 I knew I a liked turn them. on. I said, well, I, I but I've kind of turned around on on them a little bit because if you happen to be in the car or otherwise or sitting in a bar and the right eagle song comes on in southern california at the golden hour it's as though it was made specifically 
as the backdrop, as the as the uh, audio backdrop for that situation. And it and it hits. And, you know, maybe it's chicken or the egg, like maybe the Eagles made that music because they were in Los Angeles and yes. that's what came out of them. That's yes. a, that's another debate. But either way, yeah, the Eagles make much more sense to me as a transplanted Angelino when I'm out in Malibu at the beach on a weekend and I'm finishing things off with the, with a beer in hand. You mentioned it, the chicken or the egg thing. Okay. So like, I think Bonnie Vare, like uh, Justin has made albums where he just locks himself in the woods. And when I'm listening, I literally feel like I'm in the woods. I have to be in the woods to hear that music. Is it, your surroundings where you're where, where you're cultivating the art, maybe that matters and that's what people pick up on, or is it something that's inherently individualized to the listener? I, I don't know. I think I think it's probably a little bit of both sometimes. Yeah, I hear you. And 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 just to make sure that as we jump in on the specifics here, I think it's worth uh pointing out there is stuff that is like maybe it's the beginner's level uh of the game that we're playing here, but I feel like, you know. Mood music, it, like there's certain mood music and everybody gets it. Like Barry White exists. He's sort of uh, the go-to people that people reference for like- for powerlifting. When, yeah, when it's time to go between the sheets, right. That, that, <laughs> yeah, or, or, or Charlie Mangus. Like these are, these are, these are soundtracks to, to what happens uh, in the bedroom. Um, and then there's, you know, happy music. Like Jimmy Buffett, ex- I'm not a Jimmy Buffett guy, but I mean, to me, it feels like from the outside looking in, the only purpose is to go out and drink beer in summer and go to a concert and check them out. I can't imagine. I'm not a. I'm not a Buffett guy. Period. But I, I, I can't imagine even people who love Jimmy Buffett are like. Uh, Have you ever are, seen are anybody dig- listen to Jimmy Buffett in the cold? Right. Exactly. That's that's the heart of what we're getting at here. Jimmy's on my system list, and and that's a little mm-hmm. bit of a tease. But I I think in, it, it's not necessarily. It's not a slight necessarily. It's um, we like some of this music, but there are some system bands and there's a spectrum. So, you know, we'll get into a couple that are kind of fringy, but they're definitely the, the experience of, of digesting that art is enhanced by the right system. Just like players. We talked about that. I mean, it's a great analogy. And I think it works if you think of it within the NFL framework. OK, so system bands, we. I'll start with the Eagles because because that's uh, kind of what what spawned this idea in my head was uh, I just think about the Eagles and again they're they're really unremarkable to me although respect respectable for sure if I am outside out west this is the system and you mentioned it in California but I'm thinking a little bit more like deserty like painted desert hmm. Montana that sort of thing it's an evening out west at an indoor outdoor bar. Uh, it's got to be indoor, outdoor, outdoor. The flexibility here, though, is that it could be a dive bar or like a really nice bar with boomers sitting underneath um, mm. the, those really nice, expensive heat towers, the flaming heat <laughs> towers. Like they've got some bangers. That's where I would say that system uh, suits the Eagles the best. Out West, indoor, outdoor bar. I oh boy, very specific. I appreciate it. The um, yeah, <laughs> down to the heat lamps. The um, yeah, that's right. I, I think it's also interesting to consider, much like you might a league average NFL quarterback, that like okay, yeah, but he's surrounded by all this talent. What if you took him and put him on the the worst team? The Eagles for me do absolutely nothing. If I'm in Pittsburgh or if it's or if I'm somewhere in winter or it's nighttime, they are for me like a two out of ten. 
But if you catch me, like I say, driving down PCH as the sun's going down and I'm driving north um, to, to the 10 freeway to, to head back home, um, or I'm sitting there in Malibu with a beer in hand, a plastic cup, if you please, uh, that suits the, the vibe a little bit too. The golden hour, by the way, for anybody unawares, is what you see in Oakland Raiders or San Francisco 49ers game Beautiful. in the second half when the sun's going down like that, that. It's the reason they shoot movies or why they started to shoot movies in the first place in Los Angeles is because of the so-called perfect lighting, the golden hour light. And the Eagles suit that perfectly for me, and I will listen to them without complaint except unless I am not in that exact setting. Then I will complain. If they're the if they're Kirk Cousins, PCH is the uh, is the play action pass. I mean, it's 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 a great analogy. Uh, they can be certainly elite, but uh, the right things have to be going on around them. And the car, the the convertible is Dalvin Cook. Is that right? I, I yeah, I don't the convertible get... is Dalvin Cook. The convertible is Dalvin Cook. And then Justin Jefferson might be uh, a, you know a, a Pacifico. <laughs> 